right. Welcome back to the Kogan Conversation. Uh, this is an exciting episode for us. Um, but first of all, of course, I have a glass of whiskey by my side. I'm having one of my favorites. It's one of the the more uh, recent scotches that I've been introduced to. It's a Ardbeg Black Limited Edition for 2020. It's a very, very good bottle. But I'm not going to talk about whiskey today. I want to introduce you to my guest, the one and only Spike Cohen from the Jorgensen Cohen Campaign, uh, the Libertarian Vice Presidential nominee. Spike, thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy campaign. Oh, absolutely. Thank you for having me on, Cameron. I, or, uh, what, what's, Alan, it's great meeting you. Thank you. I'm sorry. I had the wrong name up. I apologize. No, you're fine. Well, it's great to meet, meet, meet you too. And I mean, I know we're a small podcast, so I really appreciate you coming on. And giving oh, of us course. Time. Absolutely. And I'm sorry I called you someone else's name. <laughs> you're fine. Uh, so I guess I, I have a couple you know, things I want to ask you about. And I, I don't want to make this all interviewee like we're in an FBI interrogation room. I want to make it a lot more conversational. But okay. I do have a couple things I want to get through. So I'll let, let you take it off. But the first one, I'm sure you've heard this question a thousand times. Obviously, we're under 100 days to the election in November. Mm -hmm. uh, this election is probably going to be the most divisive election in recent history, probably more divisive than 2016. And you and Joe Jorgensen have an uphill battle as the third party, especially with all the media blackout and not, you know, people who are underreporting you, people aren't even referencing you as an actual viable party. Yep, yep. What, what is the path forward? What's the plan? What are the numbers? Just give me the layout of where we stand right now and how do you get to the, either the debate stage or at least on every ballot and, and maybe even get to uh, the White House. So on all of the benchmarks that we use to measure our polling, our uh, our uh, uh, fundraising numbers, our recruitment numbers for volunteers, we are ahead, we are at or ahead of any of the benchmarks that we had set up until this point. And the biggest thing that we have to do, Alan, is get that 15% that qualifies us to be on the debate stage. We believe that if uh, we can get on that debate stage and you put Joe Jorgensen in between Donald Trump and Joe Biden, two men who, first of all, can barely form a coherent sentence between the two of them, <laughs> and then also, uh, probably more importantly, are emblematic of every bad thing that has come out of government. They are the career crony. They are the career politician. They are the people who have either cheered on or legislated and enforced every bad policy to come out of government for the past several decades. And you put between them, a, you know, a brilliant woman, self-made entrepreneur, someone who's ready to lead from day one, who can sh demonstrate point by point and case by case how the Republicans have created the problems that we face and how our common sense libertarian solutions are the way out of those problems. That's a no brainer. I think that we win that. Um, so that's the biggest thing uh, we saw with Ross Perot. He was regarded as this, you know, crazy little man who was spending all of his money on advertising. But what ended up happening was when the debates happened and all of the narratives were out of the way and all of the media was out of the way and it was just three men up there that were vying for the same office, the American public saw that Ross Perot was making more sense and demonstrating more competence than the other two who were running. This this one who they were told was a vote thrown away demonstrated more competence than you know anyone else that was running. And it, it actually led to him briefly leading in the polls before he decided to drop out because he never wanted to you know win in the first place. But with Joe, right. when the people see that that you know she is the one that is the, making the most sense and demonstrates the most competence compared to the, the the other options, uh, I, I think it's a no-brainer. I think we win that thing. What's the, how do you deal with the media? Like, is is there a place for reform in the media? I know obviously the, the freedom of the press. I don't want the government to touch that. Of course, of course. Is is there a future in which the twenty-four hours news cycle doesn't 
hold any water anymore? Like is podcasting and, and, and individuals reporting without any kind of big corporate media? How do you see that playing out in the future? Well, the the way that you deal with, and this is, there are many answers to the to this. There are many questions that are answered the same way. You know, people say, how do we get lobbyists out of DC? How do we get big money out of politics? And one of those questions is, how do we how do we get rid of this craven corporate media that has a vested interest in keeping, you know, uh, they're, they're bought and paid for politicians in office. The answer is to end the system of, of patronage and the federal trough that happens in D.C. Because the media right now isn't even trying to make money at this point. They try to offset their losses through advertising and ratings and so forth. But for the most part, the corporate media exists to protect the corporate interests of that of that media outlet. Most of our major media is owned by what is it, six, seven companies that yep. uh, have a vested. In, these are are, are multi billion dollar multinational company uh, corporations who have bought and paid for the Republicans and Democrats that are in office, and they have a vested interest in many different narratives. And one of those narratives is voting for anyone other than their favored, bought and paid for politicians is a vote thrown away. And of course, we know a vote thrown away is voting for the people who created these problems and hoping that this time they they actually fix them instead of creating new problems and making them worse. Uh, but that is part of their narrative. So the the short answer to that is that the way that you end uh, you know this this craven corporate media, uh, or, or or if not end it at least end it end these narratives within media is to get rid of the system of patronage. You get rid of the uh, the demand for the 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 supply of 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 graft and corruption uh, from the federal level, and you get rid of the demand for it. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think the media is a big player right now in politics, even more so than I think the DNC or the RNC, because they they kind of manage all the corruption. It's kind of interesting. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so I guess I want you to expand on some of the government's place on, on all this. And one of my biggest passions is education. I actually got my master's in 2018 in edu education policy. Okay. And I, I'm really interested to know your thoughts on how does the federal government address current education issues? Is it is it more just rolling back regulations or are there, is there more of a facilitatory type relationship that it has to have with the states and local level? Is there a transition to make sure we can get to it? So there's two things there. One is, you know, the basic education and then one's higher education. They, they feed into each other, but there are two kind of distinct issues there. Uh, the answer to both is that the federal government has failed in both of them. We'll start, I'll start with basic education, I guess, K through 12, and then, and then go into the higher education. Uh, just what, just over 50 years ago, or right around 50 years ago, the federal government uh, created the Department of Education. Uh, and the reason they created it was to deal with the, uh, the crisis level low of, uh, of the uh, national um, uh, literacy rate. Mm -hmm. They've spent nearly $2 trillion in that time. And the literacy rate has gone down. One of the other one of the other concerns they had was the that the number of students per teacher was continuing to rise and that they needed to have fewer students per teacher because as we know uh, you know a, a teacher can only effectively uh, educate so many students before if, at some point they're just becoming managers and not educators. Right. They've spent that nearly two trillion dollars and in that time the number of students per teacher has gone up and the number of administrators per teacher has gone up exponentially. What the federal government did was create a series of centrally planned, top-down, one-size-fits-all policies that at best didn't make things any better, and at worst, 
created a system of patronage for the well-heeled billionaire cronies to make a fortune at our expense. And so we have a situation where, for example, with No Child Left Behind, they said that we're going to introduce nationalized standardized testing uh, and schools are going to have to you know, comply with this testing or else they'll lose funding or potentially even be shut down. But then they've created an out where if a student was special needs, they wouldn't have to comply with it. Well, what has happened? We've seen an increasing number of children who are being labeled special needs and they're coming up with all sorts of different things like oppositional defiance disorder and they're, they're over, uh, uh, over diagnosing children with all sorts of other uh, illnesses and, uh, and special needs and giving them medications because they weren't making the, the standardized test standards. And these are not kids that we would consider special needs. The special needs educators that I've spoken to across the country certainly do not consider them special needs, but they're having their their uh, their uh, classes flooded with kids who really just aren't being served by this educational system. And now those special needs kids who actually have special needs, they're not being served either because the teacher are the teachers in special ed who are specifically uh, trained to deal with. Uh, students with special needs are now having to manage an increasing number of children who are not special needs, who just are being funneled in there so that 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 school doesn't have to comply with the federal standards there. The federal government has utterly failed. There is a reason that the Constitution doesn't mention education in 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 what one of the enumerated powers of the federal government, because it should have never gotten involved. And we've seen that as a result. The answer to that is to decentralize things, to take the power out of the hands of those crony politicians and their or those crony billionaires and their craven politicians and bureaucrats and put it back in the hands of communities, of uh, teachers uh, and of parents where it always belonged uh, on higher education. We saw what happened there. The federal government got involved and said, uh, uh, the cost of education is going up too much. We're going to set a, uh, a maximum amount that, uh, that uh, colleges can charge and we'll underwrite it through loans and grants. The limit they set was markedly higher than what was being charged at the time. And so the colleges said, oh, okay, if you want us to charge more and you'll underwrite it, we'd be happy to. And they increased that amount every year. And it eventually reached such a bubble that the under that the the, the lenders, the, the student loan people eventually started saying, we're not going to give out loans anymore. These are risky loans. We're not going to get our money back. So then the federal government took over the loans. And so now they're giving out loans that no private organization that would have to pay with their own money would ever give out. And they're they're nationalized loans. So you can't get out of them. Even if you drop out, you can't get out of them. So we have this massive student bubble, the student debt bubble, that is just increasingly growing, uh, and an increasing number of students who are getting out and realizing that uh, they're never going to be able to pay off this debt, even if they even if they went through and got their degree. Uh, and so the answer to that, again, is get the government out of it. Allow price equilibriums to happen. Because if a college is charging more than students can afford, the answer isn't to have the government uh, you know, artificially prop up those prices with nationalized debt. The answer to that is to let students say to the colleges, can't afford it. No one will give me a loan for it. You better charge less or you're not going to have any students. And they'll have price equilibrium like any other market would have when they're not subsidized by the government. Get the government out of it and the prices will go back down. The loans will become affordable and they'll have to actually demonstrate value or the students won't even go there in the first place. The other thing you do is you get out so much of the occupational licensing laws and, and educational requirements at, at so many of the state and federal level 
that's making people go to school for things like braiding hair or, uh, or, or doing makeup and aesthetics or a myriad of other things where they're going and spending ten dollars and $20,000 to go to school, not to actually learn anything, but just to go through whatever the, the state is requiring for them to do that. You do those things, you reduce the artificial demand for some of that higher education in the first place, and that will also help the, co- the, the, the cost of, of higher education to go down as well. Is there any, I, I, I hesitate to use the word relief, but I know the progressive answer is to just pay off student loans. Mm. And I don't, I don't necessarily agree with that, but there is this kind of generational uh, suffering that happens when we have this massive, like this, pe- people were lied to about college, right? right? You go to college four years, you're going to get a job. Yep. Yep. And now you have twenty five to $60,000 worth of debt. Mm-hmm. Is there anything that is there any place for government to facilitate some kind of transition to make sure that we aren't having that bubble ruin the economy in the next couple of years when these people are coming of age, buying a home? Or is it more like from the grassroots, there could be more uh, educational issues or community services or social entrepreneurs that are helping out with that issue? So I would defer to Joe on how she wants to deal with the student debt that already exists. Obviously, we're going to change the situation so that that crisis isn't going to grow moving forward. I would defer to her on how she would deal with it. My personal opinion when it comes to uh, government debt of any kind is that it's illegitimate. A debt that is incurred on behalf of taxpayers who did not agree to such a thing uh, in my mind, is not a legitimate debt. And I would say that uh, a debt that was incurred based on false promises from an organization that actually inflated the prices through its actions uh, would be, if anyone other than government did it, everyone involved would be in jail for racketeering. Um, so I think that there's a very powerful argument to be made for student debt relief, uh, especially now that it is nationalized debt. Uh, but again, I would, re- I would defer to Joe on what her actual policy would be on that specific debt. Cool. Well, I'm going to pivot just a little bit. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm actually really interested to hear you talk about your foreign policy. So I know uh, Joe Jorgensen has talked about uh, making us more akin to Switzerland, having Mm -hmm. a well-armed military, but, you know, not being everywhere on the globe like we are right now. I'm I'm hesitant to go 100 percent on board with that. But I, I, I do want to hear your, 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 you know, your, your fleshing out of it. So obviously we have a lot of quagmires in the Middle East, and obviously most of them were created by us. And we're kind of cleaning up the mess that we are perpetually creating. Mm-hmm. And it's an interesting kind of thing because I mean, Saudi Arabia, we're, we're funding wars that we are then fighting for. It's, it, it's an interesting thing. And oil is a big proponent of that. How do we pull out of there in a way that doesn't create a power vacuum that causes more issues? Because we've pulled out before in certain areas and created more issues for us to go back into or to use it as a guise to go back into the, the Middle East. When you What's look, the best? When you look at the areas that we've pulled out of and truly left... Mm-hmm. Within a short period of time, things got a lot better. So, for example, with Vietnam, we failed the Montagnards by not allowing them to come and, 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 and come here and be able to start new lives. Short of that, for the most part, the, uh, the, the North Vietnamese took over and it was not the, you know, I, I, you know they're just to prove that uh, communism doesn't work. They took over. And have immediately started the same type of market-based reforms that we see in places like China and other countries that tried, you know, full-on state communism and realized it wasn't going to work, and uh, and then and then did you know some reforms to kind of move towards somewhat more market-oriented reforms, uh, and now we have open trade with them. Uh, with with Vietnam as a result of that. So now the you know, right. we were told that the American way would come through carpet bombing and, and Agent Orange. And instead, it came through what it always comes through good relations and trade. Uh, the areas where we have 
pulled out and things got worse without fail it was only a visual and overt pulling out behind the scenes the the US government especially through military through uh intelligence services and through uh third party proxies like al qaeda and isis and other organizations that have often been uh trained and uh, funded and armed by uh, the U.S. and and you know by the State Department and by the by U.S. Uh, military and intelligence services. That's how it's made worse. Uh, I've talked to a lot of people that have come from other countries, and what I hear over and over again uh, that came from countries that have been at war uh, either with U.S. invasions or uh, you know U.S. involvement in their region. And what I've heard over and over again is that it is either the U.S. government or the corrupt governments that the U.S. props up, or the uh, third-party proxies and terror groups that the the U.S. props up, and, and and other foreign powers prop up that lead to these problems in the first place. I'm not going to pretend that if we pull out, that everything just happens immediately, it becomes better immediately. What I am saying is that in a very short period of time, things will be markedly better than they would if we continue to fall for the neocon slash neoliberal. Uh, well, I don't like the wars, but you know, if we if we get out of them, it's going to make things worse. No, it's not. It, it, it's going to continue to get worse if we continue to stay in it. It's a similar uh, line of saying, well, I don't like the options that we have for president, but we just kind of have to vote for him this time or things are going to be really bad. No, it's not. You're just going to keep getting worse options until you finally, uh, uh, you know, cut that, pull that Band-Aid and say, no, we're, we're, we're voting third party. Or in this case, no, we're pulling the Band-Aid and we're getting out of these regions. The, the U.S. involvement is why the regions are like games of risk or, or or you know, violent chess boards instead of regions like other parts of the world where the U.S. is not militarily or or uh, you know uh, through third-party proxies involved. You mentioned Saudi Arabia. The U.S. government is currently financing a genocide in Yemen. They are providing uh, the U.S. government is providing money and weapons to Saudi Arabia and Al Qaeda to engage in a war against the civilians of Yemen in order to hurt the Iranian government standing in the region. And in order to hurt the Iranian government standing in the region, they have undertaken a genocide that has resulted in well over a quarter of a million civilians dead, including over 80,000 children dead. And the number's probably much, much higher. It is nearly impossible to count the number of people that are mostly dying of starvation. Yes, people right. are dying from the bombings of the schools and the hospitals and the stores and the factories and the farms and the bridges and and, and all of that. But they're also dying from starvation and from uh, easily preventable illnesses, but they can't get the medication because the Saudi government and again, Al-Qaeda are actively engaging and fighting against anyone who would try to provide anything that allows them to have a, a civil infrastructure, a civil society. Uh, this is not just an act of genocide, it's an act of treason. Because the last I checked, Al-Qaeda was a sworn and avowed enemy of the United States. And yet, if, if, if you and I said, hey, I'd like to give some money to Al-Qaeda to help them kill people in other countries, we'd go to jail for a very, very long time. And we'd actually possibly be executed. But our government is doing it out in the open and is telling us about it. We need to get out of there. It needs to end. 
And obviously, that's that's been a problem from president to president. And it oh yeah, yeah. And that re Republican to Democrat doesn't matter. Yeah, this what? isn't a this isn't a Trump thing. It started uh, the the idea of it started under Bush. It, it started in earnest under Obama, and it has been uh, it, you know uh, it continued and and escalated under Trump. And I'm certain if Joe Biden gets elected, uh, he will escalate it even further. He was in there uh, in office for eight years. We talk about the police officer who stood as uh, Derek Chauvin uh, kneeled on the neck of George Floyd for eight minutes, ultimately killing him. And we go, how could that officer stand there for eight minutes and watch this officer, his fellow officer, kill someone? Joe Biden stood in office for eight years and watched Barack Obama carry out a genocide in Yemen, and he stood there and did nothing. So these are the choices that you have. Do you do you foresee uh, so you and Joe get in the office? Mm -hmm. Is it is it going to be a whole just cleaning house of the Pentagon and, and the military to make sure you have people who are like minded, or are you going to try to work with people who are there who have the intelligence? Because a lot of them are probably complicit with what's going on with the president, with the people at the top. What's the what's the what does it look like in practice? How soon can you get this in motion? Is it? the first four years? Is it your second term? How does it work? I think it has to be a lot of clearing house, obviously. I mean, we hear, yeah. we've heard often people go, well, I'd like to do this, but we have to listen to the experts. The experts created this. <laughs> the people that we are told are the, we got to listen to the experts. The experts created this problem and have a vested interest in making it look like it's not their fault because they're the ones who did it. They're the ones who have continued it. They're the ones who have escalated it. They're the bad guys here. In terms of, uh, even if they had the best of intentions, it has utterly and manifestly failed. So they, at the very least, have to go. There's no need to continue to have them in there. They're the ones who failed. In any other sector other than government, in any other part of the economy, if someone created a multi-trillion dollar failure, Everyone involved would be gone. They would be at right. the very least gone. Maybe a couple of them would have golden parachutes, but most of them would be gone. They would be <laughs> out of there. They would be fired, and it would be hard for them to find work in another field. I think that the true experts that I've spoken with are the ones who went overseas and actually fought and right. came back and are dealing with the VA and are, you know, yeah. as they often put, being given a second chance to die for their country by being subjected to the absolute worst form of health care uh, that we have in this country, which is the Veterans Administration. Those are the experts. Those are the people who went there and actually did the fighting and saw firsthand how it has failed, which is why, uh, you know, libertarians always pull disproportionately highly among people in active duty. And unfortunately, people in active duty aren't able to be more vocal, vocal politically. But I've spoken to many people who have privately said to me, listen, everyone in my unit is voting for you. Joe, you're the only ones that are saying what's actually happening over there. Those are the experts because they don't have a vested interest in keeping this failed, disastrous policy going forward. So I kind of want to jump off the expert train because I, I think it's interesting that you know we have such this, this trust, this societal trust in experts, and right. a lot of the the three the three acronym or three letter acronym agencies that you and you and Joe have talked about dismantling right. or abolishing. Mm -hmm. Now. I do want to ask you because obviously we live in a time when hashtags and, and, and tweets and uh, limited characters are all the rage and clickbait and whatnot. Mm -hmm. When we say abolish the ATF, when you do that in practice, obviously I'm not a fan of the ATF. I, I think, yeah. I think yeah. that that could be consolidated and, or, or dissolved. But you, like day one, you can't go in and just take it away. Is there a way – like what, what's the plan in practice for the FDA, the ATF, those kind of agencies? Because they consider themselves the experts, but they're not – you know what I mean? 
Yeah, well, they're the experts in violating the Second Amendment. Uh, the Second Amendment's very <laughs> right. clear, shall not be infringed. Uh, it, it doesn't say unless this or uh, uh, regarding that. Uh, we know that the Supreme Court often uses the Commerce Clause as a catch-all for anything that isn't uh, explicitly mentioned as an enumerated power of government, or in some cases, like with the Second Amendment, is actually forbidden uh, to be done. They'll go, well, actually, it's just, it's a form of commerce. So we're not violating their right to keep and bear arms. We're just violating their right to manufacture and sell or possess it, which is totally different than keeping and bearing. Um, and so uh, the plan with the ATF is very simple. There's all sorts of precedent that the uh, the president can simply fire whomever they want and not replace them. So her plan is to fire everyone in the ATF and uh, order uh, people in law enforcement, in federal law enforcement, not to enforce any federal gun laws or to comply with any states in their enforcing of state gun laws. Uh, at the same time, we use our Department of Justice to argue in uh, federal, uh, in appeals courts and in the Supreme Court that all of these gun laws are a violation of the Second Amendment. Uh, and when people see the immediate and profound benefits of allowing people to be armed again and to protect themselves against harm and to defend themselves and their communities and their loved ones as, as they see fit, and in uh, it not just being the government and criminals who arm themselves as they wish— when that happens, we'll be able to use that, as we use many of the executive actions of undoing previous bad regulatory policies, we'll be able to use that uh, as uh, political capital in Congress uh, to basically draw a line in the sand and say, we're on the side of removing the boot from the neck of the people. Are you on our side or are you on the side of the people who want to keep that boot on the people's neck and allow continued needless harm for no other reason than to cynically preserve your own power and influence? I, I used to work as a pretrial case manager in Milwaukee County okay. uh, in Wisconsin. And uh, it was, I worked for an, it was a nonprofit pretrial agency that basically won the contract from the, the actual state um, pretrial services. Mm -hmm. We were able to, in a more humanitarian way, because we were there for a real reason. We were, we were, we were social entrepreneurs. We were doing things for the right reason, right? We you were had just a goal. bureaucrats. Yeah. Yep. Exactly. And it was such a pure mission. I, I love that job so much. It, it, obviously, it was a nonprofit. didn't pay that well. But... Mm -hmm. I was there for about two years, and I, I had such an interesting experience working with the court system at the county level, the circuit court, and how they operated. They just – I don't know if it was because the judges or the, the public defenders just had a lack of knowledge of the community resources that existed mm -hmm. or a lack of knowledge that the, the perpetuation of this resentment that the system, the police, the – I mean, at, at times, the, you know, the FBI gets involved with certain federal cases that we have to monitor too – it's like you're creating this this perpetual you know criminality that just we, we can't handle because we have all these bureaucrats at the top who don't care because you're just a number in this system. Yep. And then case managers like myself have to get in there and try to work with this 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 guy and you know six months eight months you 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 build a rapport you build a relationship with them, but the county doesn't care about that and I I mean I'm sure that just gets exacerbated when it comes to the state and the federal level. Of course, it gets worse the higher up you go and it trickles down everywhere else as well. Is there is there a way for the government at the federal level, and maybe maybe it's a, tra a transitionary type thing, uh, to facilitate the expansion of social entrepreneurs who are doing good work who are not government su uh, subsidied or you know type agencies? Mm -hmm. Is there a way that they can do that? Yeah. Well, first of all, we need to stop so much criminalization to begin with. I mean, I, I as much as I like to see uh, people you know engaging in nonprofit uh, private social services for people that are pretrial, I'd like to reduce their caseload by <laughs> reducing the number of people that are even in pretrial to begin with. If you are engaging in something that is not infringing upon the lives or the rights or the properties of someone else in 
the action of doing so, then you aren't doing something that should be a crime. So the majority of people that are in jail right now are in jail for victimless commerce, or they're in jail uh, in recidivism uh, as a result of their already having a criminal record because of victimless commerce. And because once you get out, you still have all the same problems that led you to go to jail in the first place. And now you've got a, a criminal record and all the uh, restrictions that come on come with that, which and plus you're that much older and that much more uh, detached from uh, you know society, however many years removed when you when you come back out. And so now you're increasingly led to either relying entirely on the system, living on, you know, on, on, on welfare and, and social ser services, uh, or uh, you resort to a life of crime uh, in order to be able to make ends meet, and then you end up back in jail. So I'd we'd like to reduce that by ending the war on drugs and, and ending the war on sex work and, and ending the war on guns and getting government, having fewer interactions between the police and the public in the first place and limiting people that are that are being tried for anything to people who are uh, actually violating the lives and rights and properties of other. And then also for the lesser examples of that, like shoplifting and things like that, removing some of these mandatory minimum sentences and other things, which will allow judges to be more creative in how they deal with, you know, especially first defense cases, uh, and also getting rid of cash bail, which, uh, which criminalizes uh, poor people uh, who mm -hmm. are supposed to be innocent until proven guilty. And no one's arguing that they are a danger to the public. It's just if you don't have this much money, you have to stay in jail awaiting trial, sometimes longer than your actual punishment would be if you were found guilty, which is why many people end up just pleading guilty to a lesser offense, even though they're not actually guilty and they were wrongfully accused. And so now they have a they have a record. And so the first time they do something else, even if it's they're wrongfully accused again, now they're in jail and they're they're in the system. And this obviously the less uh, money and power you have, the more this disproportionately affects you. So we want to make those changes so that the services like what you are doing are less needed to begin with. Uh, mm -hmm. Second, we can use the bully pulpit of the White House and the bully pulpit of libertarians uh, who get elected around the country to highlight Justice Point and other groups like you that are doing the work and doing it better uh, than the people who are being paid for by the taxpayer, precisely because you actually have a goal to fix this so it's not a problem anymore. You're not making any money doing this, or you're making very little. You're being compensated poorly for your services, and you're not doing it for the money. You're doing it to fix the problem. You have a vested interest in fixing this problem, whereas the people that are in you know, an agency have a vested interest in keeping their job, which means not only do they want to keep the problem going, but if anything, if it gets worse and they can argue that they need even more money and more people and more you know, resources, then that's, in, in their mind, even better. Um, so that's what we can do from that. So we can promote it from the bully pulpit and give, you know, concrete examples of how people working in a voluntary community based way outside of the state are able to actually do these things, these social services better. Uh, and then also we can get rid of the barriers and the burdens and the laws uh, that lead to those services being needed in the first place. Yeah, one of my biggest things too when I worked there is that you're trying to remove that word criminal from the fact of like you have issues like mental health or just, yes. you know, it's like people who need help if, or, you know, drug addiction, they, they shouldn't just be automatically arrested and labeled a criminal. But at the same time, you do have a society that we have to get through that, you know, and I've had this issue with, with you know, conservative friends and conservative family who think that, oh, you know, you smoke one joint, you're a horrible person. And, you know, how do we sell that to taxpayers with the quote unquote, you know, helping the criminal, you know, because you reduce recidivism when you actually lend a helping hand and, and show some empathy and show, show some, some compassion. And it costs less. And it costs and less, it, too. 
and it costs less. And that's always been my argument is like, hey, if you want better roads in the city, maybe <laughs> we could stop criminalizing marijuana. I don't know. Yeah. So there are some people, thankfully, they are the minority, but there are some people, there are a minority, a large, depressingly large minority of people who have bought into the whole, you know, tough on crime law and order uh, shtick, hook, line, and sinker. You know, anyone who commits a crime is a scumbag criminal and needs to be, you know, uh, held to the, the 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 highest standard and have the book thrown at them and let them rot in jail for all they care. And the way that you can reach them, if at all, honestly, because uh, we're not going to be able to reach everyone. It is what it is. Uh, but the way you can reach them at all is by saying, hey, listen, this costs less and actually leads to less crime. And we have the data to show it. We, we can show right. that this costs less and leads to less crime uh, even if they're not a fan of, of you know, e e you're not going to hit them from the compassion angle because for whatever reason, they are bereft of any compassion for anyone who's been accused of a crime, uh, especially mm -hmm. if it's someone that isn't from their neighborhood and doesn't look like them, unfortunately, uh, and doesn't make as much money as they do. Uh, but you can sell it from a fiscal conservative standpoint. You can say this costs less. This costs much right. less, like pennies on the dollar, and it fixes the problem. It, it leads to less crime. Um, for the majority of people... You can hit them with both that. You can reach them with the it costs less and it leads to better outcomes. But you can also hit them from the fact that if you're a shoplifter because you have a drug addiction, I'm not even talking about people that shouldn't have even gone to jail or been punished in the first place. They have a drug addiction, so they sell drugs to feed their addiction. That's a health problem, and you deal with that by getting them rehab and getting them help. Not, not by right. putting them in jail. But I'm even talking about someone who, because of an addiction, commits a, a crime of petty theft. Okay? Mm -hmm. Uh the best way to deal with that is to get deal with their addiction issue, get them to rectify the situation to to do, you know, to repair the situation, to make the victim of that crime whole in whatever way it is, because we're probably talking this is often stuff that's, you know, a thousand dollars or less. So we get them dealt with. In terms of, you know, getting them the help that they need. And this can be done by nonprofits. I'm not even talking about taxpayer funding, but even if it were taxpayer funding, it would cost a fraction of what our, our retribution model currently costs, uh, not to mention the recidivism. And this person can get their 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 addiction dealt with. Then they can fix, you know, make the 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 the, the victim of their crime whole by paying them back. Uh, and then now they've dealt with the crime that they committed. They've they're no longer addicted. They're on a path, hopefully with other nonprofit social services to get them the help that they need moving forward so they can learn mm -hmm. a skill and, and be able to, to move ahead. Some of these people already had skills. They just got caught up in addiction. Get them gainful employment, get them help. Now they can thrive. Now their victim can thrive. Now there was no prison involved in that process. There was no jailing involved in that process. There's no cost of, 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 of keeping someone in jail at the, what is it, $30,000 a year to, to keep someone in a prison? There was none yep. of that. And this person is now a a a, a law-abiding and 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 uh, and uh, 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 contributory and 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 constructive member of society. They're they're helping grow society. They're helping grow their communities. They're helping keep their 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 family together. How is that not a better option? And for the majority of people, you can sell them just on that. And for those who don't really care about people that they've decided are scumbag criminals, you just say it costs less and leads to fewer scumbag criminals. Right. Well, and on on top of that too, it 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 reduces the interactions we have with maligned members of society. Yeah, yeah. I mean, absolutely. It, it it's it's so it's so interesting. I mean, obviously, right now, and this is this is obviously very topical. The Black Lives Matter movement and what's going on right now racially in the country. Mm -hmm. it, it it 
do you think that it's been something that's been bubbling underneath the layers for some time? Or do you think there's something that it was it really George Floyd alone that triggered this? Was no. it part of the pandemic that what, what do you what do you think about all this? The pandemic on? and George Floyd are and, and before that, uh, 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 Ahmaud Arbery. And then even mm-hmm. before yep. I think either before or just after that, Breonna Taylor. Uh, yeah, these Kentucky. things have been bubbling up. That video of George Floyd, it bubbled up to the point where people who weren't even paying attention said, OK, enough already. This is ridiculous. This is reaching right. the point of the absurdity. Um, this is something that's been building up for many years. I mean, there was a riot out in front of the Democratic National Convention in 1968. This is something that's been going on for decades. This is something arguably that has been going on in many cases for the better part of 400 years. This is this is a problem that has happened as a result of a, a system of of institutionalized racism and a lot of people don't like that that word because they they think that it's saying that they're racist or that uh every policy is racist or something like that i'm talking about specific policies that were implemented at the state and federal levels with the explicit intent that it would harm people of color so not just slavery not just jim crow but also the denial of black communities in uh, black families and participating in the land giveaways post-world war ii when they were giving away basically giving away the entire midwest to white people white people that showed up and staked their claim in their 20 to 50 acres that they would get including people that just got off the boat from europe which is fine that's great that they were allowed to participate people of color were not allowed to participate So not only were they not given their 40 acres and a mule that they were promised, they weren't even allowed to participate in things that other people were being given away for free. Uh, We talk about gun control. The very first gun control laws in this country uh, were laws that were intended to stop freed slaves from being able to uh, defend themselves against the Klan. That is the roots of gun control in this country. So when we talk about systemic racism, we're talking about gun control. We're talking about the war on drugs where the people who started these policies say flat out that they were done in a way to criminalize uh, people of color and to tie people of color, to tie uh, Hispanic people to, to, to weed, which is why they changed the name from cannabis. They use the Spanish word marijuana to make it sound more Spanish and exotic, this this dangerous Mexican drug, uh, and to tie uh, cocaine and heroin to black people, even though the rates of use of cocaine and heroin were roughly the same between white people and black people, but they disproportionately enforced it in communities of color. We even know now that the CIA, in order to fund the Contra, uh, the battles between the Contras and, and Nicaragua, they actually put sold cocaine and heroin in black communities in order to use that money to fund the the, the rebel the contra rebels and to uh, greater create a, a problem of of addiction specifically in black communities. We talk about the FHA post-World War II, where white families were put in suburban housing at at the cost of roughly 10 to 20 cents on the dollar of its actual value, giving them trillions of dollars, hundreds of billions of dollars in instant equity, while black communities were completely shut out of that and put in housing projects for no other reason than the FHA would not have passed if they hadn't gotten enough Dixiecrat Uh, Southern vote uh, votes in Senate to pass it. And the only way they would pass it is if black people could not participate. This all of this has led to this and and uh, qualified immunity, which allows police officers to infringe upon the rights of Americans on a daily basis without having to be held accountable the way any of us would be if we did similar things. Uh, the uh, war on drugs, the uh, uh, civil asset forfeiture, where the government takes uh, from people who are uh, accused of a crime, takes all of their property, even before trial. 
you know, right at the time when they could use that money to pay for their defense, use it instead to pay for their prosecution, which is a total violation of due process. And then even if they're found not guilty by some miracle or the charges are dropped, then they have to pay to sue, pay with money they don't have because it was all taken from them, pay to sue the government for their own stuff back, even though it was just proven in court that they hadn't done anything wrong. And all of these things are disproportionately used against communities of color. If for no other reason, then they also are disproportionately more likely to be poor precisely because of those institutionally racist policies. So Black Lives Matter and that entire movement is something that has been building up for decades now. And it has reached a fever pitch because now we're all walking around with HD cameras and no one can deny it's happening anymore. So that's where we are right now. That is why we are active in reaching the folks that are doing these protests. I, uh, what was it? The the weekend before last, I was in Columbus, Ohio for the Libertarian Party of Ohio convention. While I was there, I was told that there was a Black Lives Matter rally happening something like 15 minutes away. I said, well, I know where we need to be. And so we left the convention, went to the Black Lives Matter protest. I spent a half hour. That's it. A half hour talking with the organizers of that protest there listening to what they had to say, empathizing with their concerns, reflecting back that I heard what they had to say, and then presenting our solutions. And on the strength of that, they endorsed us on the spot, not just me and Joe, but the entire Libertarian Party. They didn't know what libertarianism was. They called us the Liberation Party. They had never heard of the Libertarian Party. And on the spot, they endorsed us because we empathized with their concerns and we reflected and showed how libertarian solutions would fix the problems that they were facing. It's quite frustrating that we don't have people who at the top right now who do, who don't have this critical thinking lens that they actually have understanding of the complexities, even at the right. societal level. We don't, people don't understand that there is multiple layers of, of this whole you know thing. And people just get so up in arms about the one instance, like Colin Kaepernick taking a knee during the national anthem. It's like, well, okay, you know what? That one singular issue is such a stupid argument to even discuss. Like, there's more to all of this going on. And one of my most frustrating things, too, is, is the, the idea that affirmative action and government quotas and things, you know, to that nature are trying to artificially fix the racial injustices that have happened. Because sometimes mm. it does the exact opposite. I mean, a, a racial quota is in, in itself racist. Well, and it, and it leads to bad outcomes because what happens is instead of allowing, instead of fixing the problems that led to hiring disparities in the first place, which is not that employers are racist, that certainly happens, but that's not the big problem. The big problem is that you see massive disparities in readiness to be able to supply that labor to the market from community to community precisely because of segregated education systems and and the war on drugs and criminalization of entire communities and all of these other things that have led to that and and, and disproportionate levels of poverty as a direct result of barriers and burdens that are being disproportionately put on urban communities, which disproportionately affects communities of color. You fix those things and you fix the problem of employment. But if you say instead, well, we're not going to fix any of those problems, but you have to hire a certain number of black people. Right. Now, instead of employers hiring people based on their merit, now they go, ah, you know, we need 10 black people. So we're going to make a, a department of rubber rooming, basically a department that really doesn't do much, but we'll just hire the minimum quota of black people and pay them the minimum amount to be able to comply. And now when a black person comes in that actually has merit, they go, well, you know, we already have enough of them. It makes things worse. And it creates this perception within corporate culture that black people are basically a burden that you got to just put in the rubber room and, and not really give them any, any, pay them any mind. It is harming things on a societal level. It is not fixing problems. 
Yep. Uh, the, the, the place I currently work at, I work at Pacific Legal Foundation. Mm. Um, and we just released a video a few months ago before the pandemic uh, called Quota. And it talks about a, a Connecticut case where the school had basically required racial quotas in public schools. Mm. And it disenfranchised the very people they were trying to help. Yep. And it, it, it labels kids with zip codes and it, it, all these things that just add up to all the issues that have, like you said, have been bubbling over and have created where we are right now. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess last thing, and I, and I know we'll wrap up because you're, you're short on time, uh, but when you get in, what, how, how do you think you can handle the, the social divide? Is, there, is, there, is it more rhetoric right now? Do you need more like everyone talking nice and saying, okay, guys, we got the two idiots out of office. <laughs> yeah, 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 right. You know what I mean? Yeah. What, what, what do you think? So the biggest thing is that that divide is being fed by the Republicrats. If you take a step back, you realize that they're working together. It's pr- pretty easy. And, and, and an increasing number of people recognize it. When I go to these Black Lives Matter rallies, when, when I've talked to people that went to the, the lockdown protests and things like that, more and more of them are recognizing that the Democrats and Republicans are working hand in hand. And so the the jig is increasingly up. The only way that you can keep people caught up in this idea that there's a major difference between the Republicans and Democrats is to keep everyone at each other's throats all the time. This is pure divide and conquer. In order to compensate for the fact that there's increasingly little, little, little less and less difference between the two parties to the point where they're basically just one giant super party, the Republicrat. That's why I call them Republicrats. Which one am I talking about? I'll, I'll put up a policy and I'll say, guess which Republicat, Republicrat said that? And it's hard to tell because their policies are almost identical at this point. So in order right. to offset the fact that there's almost no difference between them, the rhetoric between them has to get worse and worse and worse and more and more divisive and more and more personal because they can't attack each other on policy anymore because their policies are the same. So instead they attack each other on you're senile, you're a scumbag, the way you talk to people, well you sniff children and really all they're doing is telling the truth about each other, but then just not <laughs> right. you know admitting the reality that they're just as bad. But they so they create this rhetoric and they create this divide and they create these arguments over largely hobby horse issues that allow people to be hate, hateful and angry at each other. And then they 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 politicize Everything from masks to hydrochloroquine to or hydroxychloroquine to police brutality and everything else in between. And they say, if you agree with this, then you're a scumbag, uh, uh, you know, fascist. And if you disagree with this, then you're a scumbag communist. And it's the most divisive rhetoric. And its only purpose is to keep us at each other's throats so that we don't take a step back for like five minutes and go, oh, they're all on the same side. That's all it's being, It's for. There's no other good purpose for it. The only purpose is to keep everyone saying, I know that these choices aren't the best, but gosh darn it, if I don't vote for Joe Biden, we're going to get another four years of Donald Trump and we'll never survive it. Or gosh darn it, I know that Donald Trump has broken every promise he's made, but if we don't vote for him, we're going to get Joe Biden and we won't survive four years of it. And we hear this every four years. We won't survive four years of whoever. And much of that divide will be healed simply by them no longer being able to control the conversation and us being able to make a new uh, line in the sand and a new here, this group versus this group. This group is everyone who wants things to be better and who wants the power and the wealth and the freedom to be put back in their hand and taken out of the hand of the billionaire, well-heeled, politically connected cronies who have bought and paid for politicians to be in office for well over a century at this point, 160 years of exclusive control of government by the Republicrats.
And on the other side of that line are the people who want to keep that in place. And I think that that becomes a much more decisive victory and a lot less divisive because there aren't a heck of a lot of people who want to keep the bad things going anymore. So I, I think a lot of that divisiveness ends when we, A, stop the people from have, that, that are pushing that divisiveness to take them out of positions of power and, B, undo the harm that they've done that's led to so much anxiety and, 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 and fear in the first place. Yeah, I mean, I, I've always gauged my 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 stance on things about how many people I piss off on the right and the left, and usually on <laughs> <laughs> if I if I post something on Facebook, if I criticize Trump, and I then I also criticize Biden in the same breath. Yeah, everyone gets mad at me, and I'm like, well, that means I'm right. So <laughs> it means you're right, and and obviously, you know, messaging is everything. But if both sides are accusing you of spoiling it for the other side, there's a good chance you're you're on target, and and it's just a matter of maybe fine tuning how you're presenting it. But no, I mean the, the most partisan among us, those aren't the ones that are going to get us at first. We're going to get the people who already recognize that this is a problem and that there's no real difference. And once we get enough of them, and we have strong enough numbers that now we're no longer a vote thrown away, but we actually have a, we're demonstrating we have a viable chance. A lot of those nose holding voters who are scared to death of the other side will go. Oh wow, they have a chance. Okay, I'll give them. A, I'll, I'll vote for them, and then and then it snowballs into people voting for us just because of fear of missing out. Uh, but but the, the the initial people we're gonna get are the people who don't vote. The the something like forty to forty six percent of voters uh, who are eligible to vote and do not vote, uh, as well as the the ones who do vote but already recognize that it's not working. That the the the, the, the choices they have uh, aren't really any better than each other. And that's enough to build a big enough movement that you can almost win off of that. And then once you peel off enough of the nose holders who recognize now that, you know, our third party is actually a viable option uh, to win in this election cycle, uh, then that's 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 how you come to victory. Yeah. And I will say one last thing, too, that I, I really appreciate the fact that you and Joe have been very open minded and, and you're not you're not looking for supporters that are with you 1000 percent on every issue you want to have. Yeah, you can't be. And I think I think we need to start celebrating our disagreements and celebrate the fact that, you know, we have people who are actually out there looking to be, you know, caring candidates who actually want the best for the American people. With a few exceptions, I mean, there are some sociopaths out there who their goals are just <laughs> terrible. But with the vast majority of people, all of their concerns are valid. Even if the policies that they think are going to fix them are terrible, their concerns are valid. If we are to win this election, we have to go from the 3.25% that we got in 2016 with Gary Johnson and Bill Weld, and we need to almost by something like 10 times that, actually just over 10 times that, the number of voters we need to get. We need to get something like 45 to 50 million voters, or at least 40 million voters, to really have a, a, a shot of winning the Electoral College. Mm -hmm. In order to do that, we are not expecting to be able to convert 40 million people to strict libertarianism between now and November. That's three months, not even three months from now. We, we're not right. going to do that. But what we can do is reach 40, 50 plus million people, reach them where they are, empathize with their concerns, demonstrate to them that our common sense solutions are the way to fix it. And even if they don't buy into all, you know, doctrinaire libertarianism, at least not now, but they recognize that our options make more sense than the ones that are being presented by the people who created these problems and made them worse, then we have a way to win. Well, I know you have an uphill battle, and I know you have a lot of campaigning to do uh, under 100 days to the election. Oh, yeah. I, wish you all the, I wish you all the best. I'm sending you all the good vibes. Thank you, Alan. And I, 
again, I really appreciate you coming on and talking to me. And I can't wait to share this with all my friends, family, and my listeners. It's been an absolute honor and pleasure. Absolutely. And thank you for having me on, Alan. And folks, if you like what you heard, I invite you to go to jo20.com. That's joe20.com. If you're able to make a donation, that's great. More importantly, if you're able to join our team, that would be that would make my day. If you can join our team, if you can join your local and state libertarian party, fight at the grassroots level, we'd love to have you. If you want to follow me on social media, I am at Real Spike Cohen on Twitter. I am Spike Cohen on Facebook. I'm Spike Cohen on YouTube. I am Spike Cohen on or at literally Spike Cohen on Instagram uh, and TikTok for the kids. If you want uh, before uh, TikTok gets banned in a couple days, we're being told. <laughs> I was say. Uh, yeah, yeah. Before TikTok gets banned in a couple days, you can come check me out there. Um, and but again, if you go to Joe20.com, that is our website, and we would love to have you join us. We are we are fighting. We believe that the time for the for our good ideas is now. And thank you for your time, Alan. Awesome. Thank you so much, Spike. All right, everyone. Cheers. Thanks for listening and being a part of the Kogan Conversation. Be sure to like and follow us on social media, subscribe to our YouTube channel, follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and all the places you can find podcasts. If you like what we're doing, we would greatly appreciate it if you subscribe to our Patreon. Just a few bucks a month can really help us make our content better. And helps us buy new whiskey, too. Grab a glass of your favorite whiskey every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Cheers. Cheers.